I'm Danny Clawson. I've uh, been with uh, Rolling Hills for the last three years. I've been in the home building industry for the last 27 years and the last three and a half years here in Nashville. In 2005, we had my wife and I had a daughter. And at that point, um, we started feeling led to be become part of a church to start seeing things differently than the way we were kind of living our life. Once I accepted Christ and offered, I asked him into my life, then that started the seeking uh, of the truth of what I needed to hear and, and over the last 12 years it's just been a true journey. My way of leading since becoming a Christian, um, I never really had a lot of grace for people back uh, back in that day. It was, it was my way or the highway kind of thing. I was very quick to, to write you off if I needed to. Through the years of just uh, being with some good godly leaders that have led me in the right direction, but understanding truly what uh, the Bible says about leading and how to lead a family is really no different than how to lead your business. Using my platform at the office to, to lead in a godly way is really leading by example. I pray for a lot of wisdom and knowledge to lead my family and to lead my team in the way that he wants them to be led and not necessarily in the way that I want to lead them. The most significant thing that I've done to be a godly leader is to be obedient. Um, when you're not a godly leader and you do not know what scripture has to say or how Jesus wants you to lead your life, then it's hard to lead that way. Honesty was always has always been a big part of my life, but honesty um, in the absence of compassion was pretty cruel at times. So being able to lead now as a believer and understanding, again, aligning myself with how God wants us to lead, um, offering grace, uh, forgiveness, compassion, um, loving, uh, it's, it's made a big difference in how I lead my team. Good morning. All right, y'all are awake. That's good. Uh, we, we've come to uh, one of my favorite parts of the story of David uh, and, and kind of this moment when David takes the throne uh, of Israel. And one of my favorite things about it is, in, in, in general, I, I'm fascinated by leaders, great leaders. I find myself periodically reading biographies of men and women who have been great leaders. To, to Hopefully some of that will rub off on me. But one of, the, one of my specific moments of, of fascination with leaders is that moment when critical things happen and, and they have to make decisions. Like in, in, in significant moments in their leadership when, when something turns over and they've, they've got direction to give. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in this story of David. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've been working through the life of David. We started in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and we've moved today where we've turned over into 2 Samuel where David is taking the throne. And I believe this morning as we turn to this passage and, and see this David as this godly leader and explore his, his, the first kind of steps that he takes as a godly leader, there's some significant things that we can see in David's life that we can find as applications for our own. Because as we've looked through these stories, as we've have tracked through 1 Samuel chapter 16 and so on, really what we've been asking is where do we cross with David's story? Where do we find ourselves in the story of this incredible man named David. And this morning, as, we, as he takes the, the seat of king and, is, and starts his rule as the king of Israel, I, I believe that there's some very significant things that really just jump off the page in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6 that we can learn this morning together. 
And, and before we jump in, I want to ask you just to uh, pray with me, and then we'll dive into these four principles that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for, uh, God, the songs that we get to sing and the time uh, that we as the church can gather here. Lord, I thank you for, God, what you're doing in Nolansville through Rolling Hills. God, the time uh, that we've been here and the lives that have been transformed uh, by, by your grace as you've moved in this place and in our community groups that meet in this, in, in this city. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do a great work. Uh, God, we pray that this morning as we do sing these songs and open up your words and, and, and spend time in fellowship with each other, that you would soften our hearts to hear your voice and that by the power of your spirit, you would transform us and make us look more like you. And Father, as we talk about leadership this morning and the example that you've given us through the life of your your son, your, your child, David, Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity as to how we also can grow to be godly leaders in much the same way that David was a godly leader. It's in Christ strong in my name that we pray. Amen. So as I said, we, we've turned the page to 2 Samuel. If you've, if you've tracked with us, we started in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but we've turned the page to 2 Samuel, and, and the beginning where we're going to skip kind of the first couple of chapters there uh, as it kind of tells the story of what happens after Saul dies and, and gets to this point where, where David finally takes the throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, it says this. It says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and said, you are our own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and become their ruler. And when, the, and when all the elders of Israel came to David at Hebron, they came. The king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David as king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 40 years. So the question really kind of as, as we turn to that is, what have we, how do we get here to this point where David is, has taken over the, the throne of the people of Israel? And, and for that, we want to kind of, kind of rewind and then quickly come back through all of the places that we've been. And as you said, we started in chapter 16, but I want to go a little bit further back than that. You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of God reject God as their king. They come to Samuel, who is who's a prophet, who's been given charge to lead the people of God by God. And they come to Israelites, the elders of the Israelites. They gather to Samuel at Ramah and they say to him, you're old and your sons, they don't they don't walk the way that God wants us to walk. And so we want you to appoint us a king. And it says in chapter eight of first Samuel that Samuel is upset about it. He goes back to the Lord and and the Lord has a conversation with Samuel where he says, listen, it's not you that they've rejected. It's me that they've rejected. And it's the same thing that they've done for years and years since I brought them out of Egypt. They've rejected me and they've rejected the people that I've put over, put over them as leaders. And so Samuel is given instruction by God to go back to the people and say, this is what's going to happen when you appoint a king. But they say, listen, we still want a king. And in verse 19, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel and said, no, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like other nations with a king to lead us and to go before us and fight our battles. And so they anoint Saul as king. He's this man that stands head and shoulders above all the rest of the Israelites. He looks kingly, and so they assume, and so they, they bring him in. They anoint him as king, and he is king. And it says that he reigns for 42 years. 
But it's not long after he takes the throne that he begins to walk in disobedience and rejects the Lord. And by chapter 15, God has already rejected Saul, even though he'll spend many years on the throne after that. He's rejected him because of his disobedience and said there's going to be somebody else. And where you picked up, where we picked up in, the, in this series in chapter 16, God sends Samuel to choose a king. And he's, the king that he chooses is a man named David. He's a young boy who's a shepherd in the fields who's actually passed over in the first look. But God says, I'm not looking at, at the outward. I'm looking at the heart. And so David comes in. He says, this is the guy that's going to lead my people, a shepherd. And then chapter 17, David goes out and he fights this battle against this giant named Goliath. What's interesting is that that giant was supposed to be fought by the man who stood head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites, a guy named Saul, but Saul was afraid. But David, this young shepherd boy, steps in. And because of it, this jealousy begins to grow between Saul and David. And Saul hates David. And multiple times and from, from then on, Saul tries to take David's life. But we saw, in, as we looked on Father's Day, that David continues to respond in honoring him, even though he was not worthy of being honored. Fast forward to chapter 20. We saw this incredible friendship that grows between David and Jonathan. We were reminded that that we need godly friends to spur us on and to encourage us. And then last week, as we got together, we talked about uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26 specifically, but really to the end of Saul's life as he would die in battle, taking his own life because he didn't want to face it. And we talked about how David continued to wait even when, even when things didn't look good. That he was faithful to God even when things kept falling, feeling like they were falling apart and, and trusting that God would fulfill his own plan and, and his timing. And Pastor Jason said this last week, which I thought was key to us understanding what's happened to, up to this point. It says, David consistently allowed God to set the agenda in his own life. David continued to trust the Lord to set the agenda in his own life. And that waiting has brought us to this place. Where what we see about godly leaders, the first of the four principles that I feel like just kind of jump off the page for us in 2 Samuel chapter 5, or chapter 5 and chapter 6, is this, that, that godly leaders wait on the Lord. David was chosen as king, anointed as king by Samuel years and years before he would become king. And godly leaders, if we want to know what it means to be a godly leader, we have to be men and women who learn how to wait on the Lord to fulfill his purpose and his timing. And God had a timing for David. David, I'm certain, could have, could, could have thought multiple times throughout that, that journey that this would be the right timing. Obviously, his own men said, this is the spot. God's given you Saul into your hands. He says, no, I'm going to wait for God. Wait for God to take his life, not me. He says, ultimately, that for all of us, what we learn as we look at David's life one just the clear fact that we've talked about over and over again is, is that God, that godly leaders wait on the Lord. And one of the things that I think is clear in this passage that we, we, we would do well to take, take in in 2 Samuel is that when they, these elders come to David, what they say, in the, they say in verse 2, it says, In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us into military campaigns. And what we see is that not only godly leaders wait on the Lord, but godly leaders wait. And while they're waiting, they're obedient. They do what God's given them to do in the context of where they are. 
David didn't need to take the throne. What David needed to do was be obedient in the places that he was in, with the, lead, with the campaigns that he was leading, with the people that he, was, that he was in charge of, that he was obedient in those places. And because he was obedient in those places, and the time came for him to be the king of the people of Israel, he was ready. So godly leaders wait on the Lord, but in the waiting, they're faithful to what God has called them to do in that moment. A lot of us need to think about that and, 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 and ponder how we're waiting. We know that God has something for us, but in the meantime, are we waiting and being diligent about following him in obedience to what he's called us to? And secondly, I think this clear that jumps off this page, if we flip over just one chapter to 2 Samuel, is that godly leaders prioritize the presence of God. That godly leaders prioritize God's presence. We get that just in, in, as you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Listen to, to what happens here, and you can see that what David does is he prioritizes God's presence. And David, again, brought together all the abled young men, able young men of Israel, 30,000 in total. So what he does is if you go to the end of chapter 5, there's a military campaign against the Philistines. But here's really the first act, the first decision that David's making as king. This is that critical moment, like the, what I said earlier, this specifically what I love to watch, what I'm fascinated by, is what leaders do in those critical moments, the beginning of his reign as king. And the very first thing that he does, the first decision that he makes, is he brings all these able-bodied men, 30,000 in number, and he and all the men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which was called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it, into the brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And so it, it continues to say that, that Uzzah and, and his son Ahio, the Abinadab's boys, they guide the cart in verse 4 with the cart, uh, with the cart, with the ark of God on it, Ahio walking in front and David and all the Israelites celebrating with all their might before the Lord. What David does is he prioritizes the presence of God. He looks around as he takes the throne and he says, you know, all the things are in place, but there's something very specific that's missing. It's the presence of God with the people of God. David looks and says, you know, God, Jerusalem, this, the city of God is not just going to be a political capital for the Israelites. This is going to be the center of where God is. And so what I'm going to do is, as David is the, the king, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring God's presence back to the people of God. What he wants to do is say, Israelites, the real king is going to be on the throne of the people here where we are. And so he takes off 30,000 men in number, chosen men, marching in formation to get this cherub, this Ark of the Covenant. They marked 10 miles northwest to the city. And picture this, if you kind of get to get a rough picture of it, let's just take the, the population of, of Nolensville times three to get to roughly 30,000 people. On a 10-mile hike from this campus, from, from, the, from the elementary school here, all the way to Cool Springs Galleria. I mean, could you imagine the stir that would happen as 30,000 strong marched through these hills and underneath that overpass that you might die in to Cool Springs Galleria. I feel like I reference that spot every time I'm here, so it's significant to me. It's a moment where I take my life into my own hands. 30,000 strong marching all the way there to 
to get the Ark of the Covenant because David prioritized the presence of God with the people of God. And godly leaders prioritize the presence of of God. It's been gone from the people of God, from, from, the, from the center of God's people for over 20 years, at least 20 years. It's been in this place just outside the city. But before that, if you go all the way back to the first Samuel in chapter four, the sons of Eli, this priest who was over the people of Israel, they, their, his sons take the ark out to the battlefield thinking it would be a weapon to win a battle against the Philistines. And rather than winning the battle because of it, it's a foolish move. The, the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, this representation of the presence of God is taken by the Philistines. And it says that it's, I mean, it's a serious deal when, when this happens. It says that when that happens, that, that Eli, he died, he, he, he hears the news and he falls over and dies. And his daughter-in-law has a child and the child, they name the child Ichabod, which means the presence of God is gone from the people of God. I mean, my name is T, which is weird, but the name Ichabod, could you imagine introducing yourself as Ichabod, meaning the presence of God has left? The Ark of the Covenant being taken from the people of God, being away for all of this time, was a significant event. Because the Ark was not just a chest. It wasn't, I mean, if you just kind of do the research, it, it really is no bigger than, than, than a chest that you can buy at like Pier 1 or, or, or Pottery Barn if you're willing to like take a second mortgage out on your house or something, Right? It's just not huge, but, but it's significant, and, and it's designed. God had given a design for it that it would be overlaid in gold, and on the top of it would be these two angels called cherubim, and, and from in the middle of that would be a flame, a light that would show, and, and that light was the presence of God. It was called the Shekinah glory of God, and when God, would, when God was in that place or when God's people came to meet with him, that was the place that he would communicate with the leaders of Israel, and it was gone. David, as the godly, godly leader, prioritizes that the presence of God. And so he goes and gets this. And you think about that just as we we think about what happens here. And we think about what it means to be a godly leader and prioritizing God's presence. The question for us is, do we prioritize God's presence in the decisions and the in the day to day in our day to day life? Do I make it a priority to, to, to bring God into the decisions about how I spend my money and how I live and how I raise my kids? Do my kids, do my, do my neighbors, do my friends, do they know that I prioritize the presence of God as I lead in my house or in my job, at my, wherever you're at in your school? Listen, it doesn't matter if you've been given a position of leadership. All of us lead in one way or another. And are we prioritizing God's presence in that place? Just take a sampling of David's words from the Psalms where he talks about prioritizing God's presence. Listen to this. He says, he says in, in the Psalms, better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. David highly values the presence of God so much so that he would say it would be worth it to just spend one day in the courts of my king than a thousand days anywhere else on earth. I mean, you can imagine a thousand days in some of the most spectacular places on earth. And he's saying, listen, no, one day in the presence of my God is better than a thousand days elsewhere. He continues, he said in other, other places, he says, in your presence, God is fullness of joy. He says, you are my refuge, my strength and ever present help in my time of trouble. David, as a godly leader, 
valued and prioritized God's presence. Today for us, we need to evaluate where we are. Are we prioritizing God's presence in my life with my kids, with my spouse, in my finances, with my decisions about the future? Am I prioritizing the presence of God because godly leaders prioritize God's presence? So he sets out to bring God's presence back to its rightful place, but everything does not go exactly as it was planned. And as you turn to just that next group of passages, what we see is that God, that what happens is that godly leaders experience gracious setbacks. I mean, for all of us, we've experienced setbacks, right? Godly leaders are not immune to setbacks. Even though you've waited on the Lord and been obedient in the waiting, even though you've prioritized God's presence, it doesn't mean that you won't experience setbacks. David, in this moment, experiences setbacks, but what a godly leader does when he experiences them is that he learns from them. I mean, you've all been there, right? We've all been in that spot where we didn't expect it to go the way that it went. Right? If you've taken a trip to, maybe you've done a family vacation where you did mortgage your house or did take a second mortgage on your house to go to, to Disney World and you've heard that it's the happiest place on earth, but all of a sudden when you're there, you and all of your kids and all the other kids in that huge park don't feel like they're the happiest place. They're in the happiest place on earth. Right? You've bought a Dole Whip. You've got Mickey Mouse ears. You've done all the things. If you don't know what a Dole Whip, it's delicious. But still, it's not going as you expected it. It's hot. The lines are long. You had a, you had a thought about the way that it was going to go. You had, you had prioritized God's presence in praying for this trip. And it is not going the way that you expected it to go. It's happened in, in, in my life, not just on a Disney trip, but in those moments where I've been left confused and thought, God, really, I've been obedient. And this is not what I thought was going to happen. That's exactly what happens for David. They go to this house to pick up the ark, and Abinadab and his two sons, they, they lead the ark out, and they put the ark on this shiny new cart. The band cranks up, and they're on their way. And you can imagine what's going on. I mean, they're, they're, everybody's excited. They're pumped to be able to be there and to be a part of it. You can, you can just imagine the faces of these two men. This, this, they're just excited to be a part of this, this, this journey, this, this mon- monumentous moment for David to bring the presence of God back with the people of God, Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons that are driving this new cart. They're just pumped. And they reach this part of the road as it comes down the hill and the ox begins to stumble and the ark wobbles and Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark to stabilize it. It says in verse 6, he reaches out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. In an instant, this party, this caravan of 30,000 singing, celebrating people, it all goes silent and that joy goes to weeping because Uzzah in just one moment is struck dead because he touched the ark of the covenant. Verse 7, it says, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. This irreverent act seems a little bit rough. Because honestly, what did Uzzah do that wasn't like what we would do? 
just an instinctive move, this, this treasure, this chest, that, this Ark of the Covenant that we value so highly. We see it beginning to fall. It looks like it's going to fall in the mud, and we do what, what anybody else would do. We reach out, and we stop it. And in a moment, God's, God's anger is poured out on us, and he loses his life. And David experiences a setback as a godly leader. Because God had given pretty clear instructions that this was not the way that you would handle the ark. And so what David does is he, he gets upset and he sends the ark to Obed-Edom's house. And it stays there for three, month, three months while David's back in the palace. And we said a second ago that what godly leaders do is they don't just experience setbacks, but they learn from their setbacks. And so David doesn't just give up and say it's never going to happen. Right. David goes back. He said he, he he has that moment. He says, can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? But he goes he goes back and he begins to think and he leans into what's happening and how how do we do what we've said we're going to do? I, I, he values the presence of the Lord and something's got to happen for it to come into into God's into the place where God has it into Jerusalem. And so for three months, he begins to roll this fiery holiness of God around in his mind. He thinks of what, what he can do and how he can make it happen. And he goes back to God's word. Because if, if we're going to be those who, lean, who learn from our, our mistakes or learn from those setbacks, we're going to have to be people who lean into God's word. And so in God's word, what he finds is that God had not only given a description of the way that it built, it was built and what would be in it, but also the way that it would be carried. That he designed for that. So that this, something like this would happen. Even though the cart was cool. Even though it had all the bells and whistles. It probably had Bluetooth and its hatch opened on its own. Whatever. All the things that, that make cool. That was a joke. All those things. God had a design for it. And all the bells and whistles didn't need. He didn't need it. What he needed was to know the way that God had designed it to be carried. And so he goes back to God's word. And he finds in Exodus chapter 25. Verses 12 through 15 that God tells him, he says, cast four gold rings and fasten them to the four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other. 13, he says, then make poles of acacia wood, overlay them in gold, insert, insert the poles into the rings on the side and carry it. And the poles are to remain in the ark, in the rings of the ark, and they're not to be removed. He says, you want to you know the way that this is supposed to happen? You can value the presence of God, but the setback caused him to lean into understanding exactly the way that God had designed it. And he learned how, to, how God had designed it by saying it's just poles. So he makes the poles. But the lesson that he learns also is that, is, is that as Proverbs tells us, says, Solomon obviously reflecting on the lessons that his father has taught him. He says this, there's, there's a way that appears right, but in the end it leads to death. And if we want to be godly leaders, if we want to grow to be godly leaders in our home, in the marketplace, and in our schools, and wherever we find ourselves, we're going to have to be those leaders who, who see, the, see a way that maybe our culture says it's supposed to be, but say, no, listen, the way that God designed it to be is the best way. And we can see it in so many places where we just give a little bit in our finances or in our relationships. Like, No, God will just forgive us. No, listen, God has a way that it's supposed to be. And when we walk in holiness to it, we get to experience the joy of walking in obedience. There's a way that seems right, but in the end, it leads to death. 
And he went back to God's word and he says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He continues again, Solomon's wisdom that he undoubtedly heard from his father. He says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and shun evil. David experienced a setback, but he learned as a godly leader, he experienced this moment of, of trial, but he learned in the midst of that trial. And to be a godly leader who learns, godly leaders who experience setback, we learn from the setback by leaning into the Lord and listening to him. We lean in and we listen to him. We, godly leaders, we, we wait we want to be a godly leader. We're going to wait, and we're obedient in the meantime. We're godly leaders. We prioritize God's presence, and we experience gracious setbacks. We learn from them. But lastly, what I think we see in this passage is that godly leaders worship joyfully. That godly leaders worship joyfully. Leaders can find themselves in this trap where we, where we can kind of over and over just move on to the next hill. Maybe you're like that where you just where you accomplish something, and you just move on to the next thing and, and whatever it is, you don't slow down to really celebrate what happens. But David, he celebrates what happens and he gives us an incredible picture of what it means to to be a godly leader who worships joyfully. It says in uh, in, in verse 12 of our passage. He goes back to Obed, Obed-Edom's house, and he puts the poles in the ark and in verse 13. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing the linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. While all of the Israelites were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. It says that they, these men who put these poles in the ark of the covenant and they walk from Obed-Edom's house. They take six steps outside of Obed-Edom's house and they put the ark down and they celebrate. And it's not just a moment where they kind of huddle up. Hey, guys, let's just let's do a little quick prayer before the game starts. Let's make sure we worship there. Let's, let's do that. No, no. What they do is they have a full on service. They sacrifice the fatted calf. The priest comes in and they do the whole ritual that God had designed for them. They're celebrating the grace of God, the presence of God, the provision of God. They recognize that these six steps are a gift from the Lord. Godly leaders celebrate. They worship joyfully. We want to be godly leaders. We've got to be those who worship God with joy, who take step back, who step back and say, God, you were the one who provided for me in this. You were the one who gave me everything that I needed. You are the source in my strength. And when we don't do that, we miss that moment of joy and blessing of experiencing God's presence in its fullness. I think about godly leaders and the way that we lead, being a godly leader and the way that we lead in our homes. And maybe this is just me, but I think my kids know really well when to celebrate on Saturday afternoons during the fall when a touchdown is scored by a team that I like. They know really well how to celebrate things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis in my home that, that have to do with sports or maybe even money or 
different things that are, that are valuable to me, but do they know how to celebrate God's grace and his presence and his provision in the little things that happen on a daily basis? Am I leading by them seeing when we sit down at the dinner table by saying, God, you are the one who provided this meal? Or is it just a break so that we can say a, say a couple words and then dig in? Do they know that we, we trust God and celebrate him as the one who's provided everything? Am I leading at work? When I celebrate lives who are transformed by, by God's grace, when I celebrate some, a breakthrough that somebody has in their lives as, as I walk with somebody, being a pastor with, with individuals in college and young adults, do, I, do those who are around me see that? That what I value the most is God's provision and I recognize that every turn that it's him, as the, he is the one who's given me, this, the, given me the victory or the success or any of those things. My kids know when to celebrate when a touchdown is scored. But did they know how to celebrate when a victory is given in Christ? And godly leaders are individuals who worship, who worship joyfully. I'm fascinated by leaders. It's common in our culture to throw stones at them, to judge the decisions that our leaders make, and some of them certainly deserve a little bit of judgment from the decisions that they make. But Scripture gives us such a clear picture of what it means to be a godly leader. And my challenge for us this morning is to think about those places that he's got us. Are we, are, are we growing and waiting on him? Because godly leaders wait on the Lord. Are we growing and prioritizing God's presence in our lives? Are we growing and understanding the setbacks and learning from them? Are we growing as godly leaders and worshiping him joyfully? And what I want to do for just a moment is just give us a second just to kind of, in a moment of silence, just think about where we are. All of us are godly. All of us are leaders. We've been given responsibility no matter how large the, the context, the crowd doesn't matter. It's are you walking in obedience with the people that God's given you to lead? In your home, in your workplace, in your community group, in the church. So think of, thinking about those things, that, that am I waiting on the Lord? Am I, am I trusting him? Am I being obedient? Am I worshiping him? Am I prioritizing him? Giving space, asking him for direction? Am I learning from my setbacks? And give us just a couple of seconds of silence and then I'll pray for us. And Pastor Jason has a couple of words just for us as we close this morning. So if you'll bow with me, we'll pray together for just a moment. In the silence, just ask the Lord to open your eyes and your heart to hear him and to listen to him.
believe that you are present. And that your word is living and active. And that what is spoken, it doesn't come back void. And so I believe that this morning you're working in the hearts of your, of, of your children. You're working in the hearts of, of these who have gathered here this morning. Whether a sermon on leadership is what they thought they were going to get, Father, that, that you had marked for them in this day from your word to hear something that would spur them on to, to obedience and repentance and faith. I can imagine in the three months that the ark said at Obed-Edom's house, Father, that David spent a lot of time in silence listening to you. And I pray just a moment of silence here would not be the only time we spend in silence, but Father, as those you've called to lead and to be godly leaders, that we would lean in and listen, find moments of silence where we can hear from you, to be encouraged by you, to be spurred on by you, that in your grace you would expose sin, that we can repent and trust you. Father, I'm thankful that as we look at David's life and, and the incredible example of a godly leader that he was, that he ultimately points us to you. And the recognition that anything that we do is trusting in you for, for the strength to accomplish it. That in and of ourselves, we don't have the ability to accomplish what you've called us to, but by your spirit's power in us, we can lead in the ways that you've called us to. And so we pray that we would be leaders who trust in you. I pray that, God, in this moment, that how homes would be transformed as moms and dads choose to lead in godly ways. That neighborhoods would be transformed as kids and high school and middle school students choose to lead their friends and their neighbors in godly ways. We pray that you would do an amazing work as you call us to follow you and to lead in whatever place and whatever context you've given us. It's in Christ's name we pray.